Thank you, Jose. We're in a series on the book of Hebrews. We've been talking over and over and over uh, to how the fact that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And, and in the broad context of what's going on here, we have these Hebrew Christians that the author is writing to. They're struggling. They're thinking of, back, of going back to their old ways. They're thinking of, of, of returning to their, their old coping mechanisms, almost the way, way we could look at it. And because we can relate to that. We have habits. We have, we have stuff that bring us comfort, that is appealing when things get hard. Old belief systems, old relationships maybe that aren't healthy, old habits, old ways of escaping and getting away from pressure and difficulty. And when things get hard, we're tempted. We're tempted to go back to that. That's just exactly what's going on with them. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's saying, look, it's going to be difficult at times. It's, this is part of living in a sinful world that is broken. But he says, I have overcome the world. I'm the one you need in this. And so we cling to Jesus. That's what our default needs to be. Instead of these old habits, we need to start to train ourselves to cling to Jesus. So these people are struggling. They have difficulties. They have needs. We are struggling. We have family struggles. We have work struggles. We have relationship struggles. We have health struggles, financial struggles. We have school struggles. All kinds of things going on. So what did they need to live in this broken world, because that will help us figure out what we need to live in this broken world. So we're going to look at that. And the first thing I want you to see is we need a promise. And I put on there to hold on to, a promise that helps us in those difficult times where we're holding on for our dear life, feeling like everything is collapsing around us and, and we're just hanging in there. And so the he posed, they read this, but let me review just the, the first three verses. And, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So we need this promise. It's interesting here. He uses this word oath, promise, covenant, he uses this word four times in that short little passage. It's like he's trying to get us to understand something. It's like oath, bonk, oath, bonk, oath, bonk. He's getting our attention with this. He's saying, this is important. And at first glance to us, because we're not first century Hebrew Christians who worshiped at the temple and could see that the temple worship was ongoing, this oath, maybe we, we struggle a little bit with trying to figure out what's the big deal. But an oath is a promise. It's a promise that has a sense of permanence. It says, this is important. This is permanent. Other priests, he tells them, other priests got their priesthood simply by birth. They were born into, it was happenstance. It was a look at the draw. You know, they were born into the tribe of Levi. And it wasn't permanent because they die. Jesus, not so. He was born into the tribe of Judah, so he's in the wrong tribe for being a priest. And we talked about this a lot. The author of Hebrews has talked about this a lot. He's in a non-priestly tribe. And by oath, by promise, by covenant, God appoints him a priest. A priest with a promise forever, no end. It will never 
end. Now, think about this. I mean, I was thinking about this. We make promises, right? And we sometimes say things to emphasize that we're making a promise that we really stick with. We're really going to stick with. Every once in a while, like, <clears throat> someone will say, well, to be honest, I'll say this. And I'm like, wait, hold up. Does that mean everything else you've been saying has not been that honest? Are we qualifying here? Right? And what is it? No, it's just to try to emphasize. I really want you to understand this. We do this. We emphasize when we're telling the truth. We show, we, we oftentimes show it with a guarantee that you can punish us if we back down on that oath. People say, may God strike me dead. And I'm always, whenever somebody says that, I'm just like, just in case. Just in case, and if there's any splash effect, you want to get away from this, because you're invoking someone, you don't even have a clue what you're doing here, right? We'll say, you know, may God strike me dead. Or, you know, when we're kids, right? Cross my heart, hope to die. That's pretty strong. And then to finish it off, after I've died, stick a needle in my eye, right? Right, when you're little kids. I can just remember the first time as a little kid hearing some kid chant that, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm going, what? What? You know, and so it's like now, you know, we, we I, just, I just remember thinking, that's a little extreme. It's like, oh, dude, he must mean we get to kill him and then stick something in his eye afterwards? Wow, if he doesn't keep that promise, that's what we get to do? See, the point, of the, oath, the point of the oath that God is making is to show that Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant that we will be part of. God says, this is how serious I am. Here's your guarantee. And he makes a promise. He makes an oath. What is a guarantor? A guarantor is like, it's like a surety. It's like a person who takes responsibility for another person's promised performance. That's what that guarantee is. That's how that works. A person who takes responsibility for another person's promised performance. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says there's this new covenant coming, and it's a better covenant, and it's the covenant of Jesus. It's a better one. Jeremiah is telling the sins won't be covered temporarily. They will be gone. Now, understand that in that context in those days. What happened? They saw offerings for sins all the time. All the time. Individual offering for sin. Group offerings for sin. Year after year, month after month, sometimes week after week, people are, you know, all the time, every day in the temple, offerings are being given for sin. And what do they say? And they all know it. They cover the sin. It's just temporary. The sin still has to be dealt with ultimately. And in the Old Testament, God's telling them, I'm gonna, there's a day coming when I will deal with all of those sins. And in Jeremiah 31, he begins to introduce it to it in other places in the Old Testament. And he tells them, here's what's going to happen. They're going to disappear in a sense. They're not going to be remembered. They're never going to be brought up again. I, I know I've shared this before, but it just it sticks in my mind when I a kid one time screwing up and telling my dad, I'm really sorry. Sorry I did that. And he said, this is like the seventh time you've done it. When, when are you going to get serious about this? And I remember going, oh, my goodness. He's keeping track. He's got like a notebook, and it says Bobby. And underneath it, 
One, two, three, four, five. And now he goes in, here's number seven, right? And God says, nah, that's not happening. They're put in a place where they'll never be remembered. They're put away. They're gone. They don't have to be dealt with anymore. It's going to be a once-for-all thing. And Jeremiah tells him, this is coming. This better covenant is coming. Real quick, two words commonly used for covenant in the New Testament. Senteke is a covenant that is made more or less by two people on equal terms. And diateke is a covenant that oftentimes it was, uh, could be used, it was a word they used for a last will and testament. In other words, the person said, this is my last words, These are, this is my last will. And they would say, I want this to go here, I want this to go here, I want this to go here, I want this to go here. I want $10,000 to go to this person. And they would die. And then they would say, okay, here's what he said. His last will is $10,000 goes to you. And the person who gets the $10,000 can't go, no, no. I, I've done more for him than he realizes. I'd like to negotiate this. I, I want, I want 25000 You can't negotiate. He's dead. It's gone. It's over. See, it's the idea of a covenant. It's the idea of a, of a, a will that is absolute. We don't, we don't change it because this is what that person said. It's the idea of being an absolute promise. And this is what's happening here. He's making that promise. Our salvation rests on the Father's oath and the Son's guarantee, and we can trust him. So we need a promise that we can hold on to. I want you to see now, we need a lawyer that we can depend on. In verse 23, it says, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to him through him, don't come to God through him, because he, is all, all, because he always lives to intercede for them. So for these people, he's saying these priests, they die. It's just this rotating thing. But Jesus lives forever. It's a permanent priesthood because it's a permanent salvation that lives forever. He's trying to get us to make that connection. And that Jesus has been saying, and he says it here too, Jesus is better. Why? He never dies. He never dies. Also, he's unique. He's one of a kind because he's the one that doesn't die. All the other priests over all the years. But there's only one Jesus. So verse 26, he's going to expand that point. But in verse 25, he says, therefore, why? Because he's the permanent priest, because he doesn't die, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. He's making this case. He's building this case for us to understand this. He's saying this is so important for you to grasp. And he says he's always interceding for us, present tense, continuously interceding for us. This is a continuous action that just keeps going on and on and on. Now, what is this? Well, to intercede is to approach someone on the behalf of another, to approach someone on the behalf of another, like in a court of law. And in those days, it was very similar to these days. If you had a problem in your area, you had to go to the magistrate, you would get someone who was familiar with Roman law, someone who understood what happens at a magistrate. And this was especially true for the Jews because they weren't used to the Roman system that much. They didn't like using it. And when they had to, they had to get somebody to help them. And you'd get an intercessor, you'd get an advocate, you'd get like we get a lawyer today. 
someone who knows the law and the customs, someone who will represent you. I have known some people in the past who have represented themselves in a court of law. I'm not going to get a liar. I'm just going to represent myself. Talk to one guy one time. I'm just going to tell the truth. And I said, I'm in favor of telling the truth. But you might want, might want to know how things work. Because when people represent themselves, it, everyone can, it, it's a disaster. It hardly ever works, if ever. It only works on TV. Only on TV do you see people represent them and suddenly they're just brilliant lawyers. It just doesn't work that way. So you get somebody who can represent you because in court, your lawyers, your advocate, their brilliance, their eloquence, their knowledge all goes to you. If you hire her and she wins the case, you win. It all comes to you. This person now is your advocate, your representative. And see, being a Christian is not simply having Jesus as your example or Jesus as your helper. If you, if you think about it, your standing with God is what this is all about. And if you are working on your standing with God on your own, you're working hard at it. If you say, hey, I, you know, I'm praying to God, I'm trying to live right, I'm trying to obey, I'm going to church. When you say those things, what you're doing is you're representing yourself. You see what you're doing? You're representing yourself. Your standing with God is so important. You don't want to be the one who is your own attorney in court. To be a Christian, and this is throughout the Bible, is to be in Jesus. It's to be in him. We are in Christ. He is my substitute. We are in union with him. He is my advocate. He is my intercessor. And so we need to see that. And he's getting them to see that. He's using words that would be very familiar with them. He's getting them to see that he's, he's our lawyer. Jesus is our lawyer in the ultimate trial. He's our lawyer at the ultimate bench. He's our lawyer in form of the ultimate judge. Well, how does this work? This intercessing, this, this advocacy that Jesus has. When I, when I first came to Christ, and I really didn't know a lot of what I was doing or a lot was going on, I can remember thinking that, that in terms of just how things work and I'd seen on TV and around me or a few times I'd been in court, um, few times that I'd been in court. In my early days as a believer, you know, I thought, I thought it was like Jesus had this daily caseload, right? And he'd come in with all these folders, and they would say, case 47371, and he'd go, Bob, there's Bob, okay. And he'd open it up, and then, you know, he would he'd be saying, God, you know, you got to be merciful for, to Bob. I know he's screwed up. I know he's promised to change, but you got to give him a break for my sake. For my sake, give him a second chance. And God would say, I, I know, but he's really a screw-up. And look, he's a pastor, for crying out loud, Right? And Jesus would say, I'm asking for mercy for my client. After all, I did everything you asked me to do. And the father would say, well, all right, mercy. I thought it kind of happened like that. That is not at all how it happens. Because here's the thing, just something to remember if you ever go to court. If your lawyer starts asking for mercy, you lost the case. <laughs> you lost. You're in deep duty, right? You're in trouble. You're in trouble. So it brings no comfort to think of it that way. But verse 25 
says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And because of that, he always lives to intercede for them. So there's something special here. There's a completeness. And so what's going on? Here's what's going on. Jesus comes before God and says, Father, you are the God of justice. You want justice, and I want justice. And Bob is guilty, which, you know, I'm going, whoa, already? Have we just thrown in the towel already? I'm thinking we're going the mercy route, right? But then Jesus says, and I, I know, I'm just making this up. Jesus said, in case you thought I had a direct line or something. No, just, <laughs> Jesus said, but I made the payment for sin. I made the payment. The debt is paid. And you cannot pay for the, a debt twice. So the payment has been made for this debt, and I'm not requesting mercy. I'm demanding justice. Jesus is before the Father, the accuser, and there is an accuser. Don't ever think, you know, everybody, oh, it's just this force out there that's negative. No, there is an accuser. And his scripture tells us he's doing it daily. And he makes an accusation. And Jesus says, yes, he's guilty of that but I paid for it. The debt is paid, double jeopardy. You can't do that. So to be just, Father, to be just, you have to dismiss this case. It's gone. It's gone. First John, think about this in that courtroom thought. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not faithful and merciful, faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. He's saying, what's happening here? Jesus is crying for justice. And this is a beautiful picture because his, his death, him dying for our sins, has covered our debts, has covered them. They're gone. They're put in a place where they'll be remembered no more. And that's what Jesus is doing right now, today. And it is really good news. That is really good news. Because there is an accuser and we need a defender. We need an advocate. So when, Jesus, when um, Satan points out my numerous sins, Jesus in effect says to telestai. To telestai. That's what he cried at the cross. It is translated in English, it is finished. But the literal meaning is paid in full. On the cross, Jesus said, Bob sins as he paid, paid in full, never to be paid for again, and past, present, and future, taken care of, never to be paid for again. Let me tell you, when you can get the best lawyer in the history of the universe, and he's willing to pay your bills, I mean, in the history of no-brainers, that's the no-brainiest right there. That is, that is you got to do it. It's, it's, it's the most, and so we need a promise that we can hold on to. We need a lawyer that we can depend on. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He says, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests. You know what he's saying to them there? He's saying, 
you guys don't want to go back to those guys. You know them. You might be friends with a couple of those guys, and you know how lame they are. They're chumps. You don't, they're weak. You don't need them. That old way, that's weak sauce. Don't go there. So he says, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so, what do we need? What do we really need? And you know, it's that thing, it's church. We all know the answer. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I hope you're not surprised by that. It's, that's what we need. You know, in 2015, I like this group, 21 Pilots, they released a song called Heavy Dirty Soul. And, and the song says, can you save my heavy, dirty soul? And he says, we're walking around, people are walking around like zombies with a hunch, saying idiot things like, you only live once. Can you save my heavy, dirty soul? Jesus meets our need. How? Well, the author gives us the qualifications, the qualifications for being the Savior, the high priest who truly meets our need. This is what he has to be. First of all, it says he has to be holy, and that's Jesus. This is the idea that he's unique. He's a one of a kind. He's in a class by himself. He's God. He's infinitely rare. He has infinite value. He's creator, so his value is infinitely greater than the sum of all created things. And this can really relate to the recipients of this letter because they're thinking about going back to that Levitical priesthood. And like I said, he's saying, you know those guys. You know what they're like. Put on fancy clothes. They make an offering, they come back out. They're just like you. They're not special. But Jesus, he's special He's infinitely holy. He's powerful. Usually when you see this word holy in the New Testament, it's the word hagias. It's often translated saint. It means to be set apart. Um, It's the idea of uh, positional holiness. It's that we've been set apart by God. We've been made holy. Positional holiness, a work in progress. That's what's wrapped up in that word. But here he doesn't use hagias, right? He uses a different, he uses hasias. It's a variation of that word but it means intrinsically holy. There's no error. There's nothing wrong. And because he's holy, he's capable of meeting our deepest needs. The next one is blameless. That means innocent. He says there, the one who is, verse 26, the one who is holy and is blameless. Uh, uh, That's that idea of pure, I'm sorry. It's pure. It's set apart. It's innocent. Wait, I got mixed up on my words, didn't I? Yes, pure's next. Sorry. Blameless. It's because I was uh, reading ahead. Akakas is the the word. Ah is the negative, and kakas is the word for bad or evil. You remember this because it sounds like kaka, right, which is bad. And so it means not bad, akakas. I mean, that's how how I remembered it in Greek class, (laughs) to remember how to do that. Um, It worked for me. But there's no evil in him. There's no deception in him. This is so key. You have a high priest. There's no deception. He's not faking it. Absolutely pure. Absolutely true. He's blameless. Pure is the next one. Pure means to be free from anything that hinders or hampers his strength or his effectiveness. The next one is he's set apart. It says he's set apart from sinners. 
And what it means is it doesn't mean he pulls him. It means that he's so different from them. He's so different. It's in the passive voice. So it doesn't mean he physically separated himself. No, we know from scripture, what did he do? He went to them. He went and ate with them. He hung out with them. The Pharisees hated him for that. They thought he was sinning. And they were wrong. So he's set apart. It's the idea that there's this fundamental difference between him and everyone else. And because of that, he can meet our deepest needs. The next one is exalted above the heavens. See, they thought the heavens was the highest, and he says, no, he's higher than that. Because the heavens were created. He's the creator. He's exalted above the highest. He's higher than all. And he's just setting this whole thing up. He's going to get to it some more. He already got to it in, in chapter 2, where he says, this one who is so exalted, this one that is so, so high, what did he do? He be, brought himself low and became a man like you, like me, a human being. He did that for us. That what, that's what sets him apart. Because what happened? He lived that life that no one else could live. And he did it for us. And he died for us. And because he's exalted, he can meet our deepest needs. So all of this, he's saying you can trust him. He's always right. He's always good. He's always caring. He's always loving. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your heart. You can trust him with your hurts. You can trust him with your finances. You can trust him with your relationships. You can trust him with your kids. You can trust him because he understands and he sympathizes with us. You know, one of the things that happens when we get involved in groups, maybe get involved in small groups, get involved in Bible studies, idea, the different ideas of community, you soon find out that everyone else is just as lame as you. You know, like, like you just go in and after a while you go, wow, we are all super lame. We are all lame. We're all struggling. We're just like a bunch of cheese balls. We're just in trouble together, all of us. And we sympathize with each other over that. Right? You see somebody struggling, you go, oh, I know how they feel, I struggle. You know, we sympathize with each other over that. But Jesus sympathizes in a different way. And he'll be in the small group or the Bible study or the community group. He'll be there too. He'll be the only non-lame one there. And he can sympathize us with our struggles because he's the only one in history to resist sin to the death and get the victory. Everyone else has failed. We have all failed at it. We all fail at it every day. He resisted. He was victorious every day of his life and went to the end and then died for us. And I know, I know, I'm reading over this, I'm reading over this this week, and I'm going, this is all so basic, but it is so powerful. We have a Savior who is the only one in the history of the world who resisted all the way to death and then died for us when he didn't have to die. All else have failed. So he knows it. See, this is the key. He knows the power of sin, the power of temptation, the power of evil. He knows it to the full. None of us know it to the full. He knows it to the full because he went all the way, all the way. 
And so, taken up on 27 there, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the people's sins, their sins, once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men all in all their weaknesses. But the oath, the oath, this new promise, this new covenant, the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. The endless repeating of sacrifices is over. And he does not need a personal sacrifice like the priest did because he's the one who resisted to the end. So he becomes the sacrifice. He becomes, talked about that last week. John the Baptist sees Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm sure some of the Pharisees are like, you mean covers the sins of the world. Covers, just like at the temple. And John's like, no. Takes away. Takes away. It's gone. They're gone. Once for all. So what do we do? You know, sometimes you struggle, you fail, you sin. You know, I want to say you make a mistake, but, you know, mistake is just the Christian way of covering up sin. You sin, and you, and you beat yourself up. You say, God, I'm so sorry. I just, oh, here I am again. Like me going to my dad, apologizing. And then saying, God, you know what? Let me just beat myself up some more. And we do that, right? We beat ourselves up. We browbeat ourselves. We accuse ourselves. We tell us how, how dumb we are, how stupid we are. And I mean, let's face it, there's times maybe in your life where you go, I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate me. And what are you doing? What are you doing? You're saying, God, look, look, I'm offering a sacrifice for you. I'm beating myself up. Look what I'm doing. Pretty good, huh? I mean, this hurts, so it must be important. And, and you just think about how ridiculous that is, that how half-hearted, how meager, how weak. And I just think Jesus, he must look at us sometimes in those situations and go, okay, number one, that doesn't even come close to atoning for your sin, pal. You know, you got a ways to go. Number two, it's already done. It's already done. Just accept my forgiveness. It's already done. And I think he would say, you're trying to live by the law. You know, we're not familiar with all the intricacies, maybe, of the Old Testament law. But we are familiar with living by law because we do it when we beat ourselves up. We do it when, we, when we, 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 we punish ourselves for the things we've done. What are we doing there? We're just going to law. We're just going to works. And Jesus is going, but that one's been paid for. You don't have to do this. Go back to 1 John. Go back to him. You know, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive your sins. It's gone. You don't have to do that. In verse 20, 28, he's saying, for the law appoints a high priest, uh, high priest men in all their weakness. This is weak. This is weak stuff here. So when we do, when we start to go, okay, I, it's just going to be about Jesus. In Christ, you begin to discover some of the stuff we sang about this morning. You discover, look, this is who he is, and this is who I am. I have an identity in Christ. Think of your identity in Christ. You're a child of the king. You're a child of the king 
of the universe. You were adopted into God's family. When you accept Christ as your savior, when you acknowledge what he did by living that life and dying for your sins and being raised from the dead to prove that he had power over death, when you accept him as your savior, then what happens is you become a child of the king. And it's interesting, you know, Paul writes about this in a little more detail. It just was, it's interesting stuff to me. Uh, in, in, in Roman times, adoption was, it was similar but different from our adoption. Oftentimes, what would happen is maybe a, a person would realize that their children are just a waste of time and they want somebody to take care of the family farm or whatever, and they would adopt someone. Oftentimes, they, no, oftentimes they would adopt an adult. They would adopt an adult in their family, and that would become their their child, and then they could, you know, make sure things happen. This, the, one of the most famous ones is, um, um, shoot, now I can't remember his name, Octavius, I think one, one of the Caesars adopted someone to be the next Caesar because his kids were lamos, right? And he didn't trust them with, you know, with the Roman Empire, and so he found this really sharp dude, and he adopted him, and he became his son. And what's interesting in Roman adoption, this is where I think it gets a little cool. In, Roman, in, in, in the Roman world, you can kick your kids out of the house. You can disown your kids. You can just disown them. Write them out of your will. You're out of here, right? You're such, a, you're such a waste of time. But when you adopt somebody, this is why it was very serious business. They went through this interesting little thing. It was almost like a little dance. There would be a, a, a mediator who would make sure this adoption happened right. And, and, and they would go through, it would be, it'd be three parts. And the... Uh, the mediator say, do you adopt so-and-so to be your child? And they say, I adopt him. And then they say, I disown him. And then they say, do you adopt this so-and-so to be your child? I adopt him. I disown him. <laughs> right? I adopt him. I disown him. And once you do it the third time, by Roman law, you can never disown that child again. So what they would do is they'd have this little ceremony, and this was all set up by the Romans as part of their law, where when you adopted someone, you could never disown them. That's how serious it is. So be careful when you adopt someone because you can't disown them. You're adopted. And God will never disown you. He will never kick you out. He has promised. He has promised. This is, this is your identity. This is who you are in Christ you have a new identity. In Christ, in a sense, and I, and I know this, let, hear me out, guilt is abolished. Guilt, guilt really is God's mechanism to get you to confess your sin and to get right with him. And it's his, it's his way to show you, to show you, think about this, how much you mean to him. Because he's saying this guilt interferes with our relationship, and you mean so much to me. This sin, I should say, this sin interferes with our relationship. Now you feel guilty about it. And that's because you mean so much to me that I can't have this. I hate it. So repent and come back to me. Repent. And, and he says, and it's gone. Now, here's the thing. Satan, that's how God uses guilt to convict you of sin. Satan uses guilt to convince you that you are worthless. When you get those times where you're, maybe you're by yourself, and you're just thinking, and you remember things you've done. Oh, you hate, I hate that. You remember some things you've done, and you go, man, I'm such a loser. Okay, that's not God. That is not God. Because you're not a loser. Who are you? You're in Christ. You're one of his children. He's thrilled with you. In Christ, 
you know, new identity, guilt. In Christ, you have a new family because of that adoption. We are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. And I want to tell you to the church, to the church in the United States of America, we need to start acting like it. There's too much hatred. There's too much vitriol. There's too much, there's too much mockery. And we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We can disagree with each other, but hatred and mockery are out of bounds. In Christ, we have a new standing. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees beauty, absolute beauty. Because we're not just pardoned. That's not enough. We have been given righteousness and beauty and glory in Christ. That's why we're in Christ. You think on these things. You you think about these things and how impactful they are. It will change you. So we have this promise from God to us that Jesus will save us to the uttermost. He's our guarantee that he will save us completely, once for all. We have a lawyer now, and he daily intercedes for us. He daily says, Totelestai, go on, Totelestai, boom, right? He's just doing it up there for us, for you. And then we have Jesus. He is better. We sang, nothing is better than you. Nothing's better than you. So as we leave this place, as we leave this place, remember who you are. Remember your standing in God. When you feel like you're being attacked, when you feel like you're being mocked, when you feel like everything's going wrong, remember who you are in Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is powerful. Lord, that it is true. And so we have looked at truth today, truth that can change the way we live. Help us, help us, Lord, to endeavor, endeavor to understand this, to be like Jesus in everything we do. Lord, we know it's a process. We know we'll fail. And we thank you so much for how you have dealt with our failures so that we just come to you, confess, and move on. Help us, Lord, to take that to heart, to know that this is a part of your process of loving us and being glorified by us. We give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, because of him, we can do it. Amen.